Well, has there been a moment in your life that has defined you, that has sort of set the sort of the directory, the destination of your life? I wonder if there's been a moment like that, or what key moments in your life would, would you say have defined who you are and set the life that you've been living? It could be something positive. Sadly, it could be something negative. Uh, this last week, I went to watch the sort of disturbing and powerful documentary about Amy Winehouse, this uh, singer-songwriter who died at the age of 27 after a history of, of drug and um, alcohol abuse. And there were, it seems to me, two main moments in her life that radically shaped her. And the two moments were... When she, the first one was when she was a child, when after a period of about eight years where her father had been, sort of been unfaithful to uh, her mother, he finally left home. And that was a pivotal moment in her life. And the other was when she first met this guy who would later become her husband, uh, Blake Fielder, who introduced her to hard drugs. Her talent brought her fame, but her life was just plagued with addiction, with bulimia, with actually abusive relationships. It's such a tragic tale. And I wonder, as you sit here today, have there been moments in your life that have kind of defined where, you know, who you are and where you are and, and, and where you're heading? There, there is a person that I want to uh, talk about today who has that power to define our lives and, and shape our lives for, for all eternity. And you'll not be surprised if I tell you that person is Jesus. And I want to show you how he does that in the life of Peter today and, and apply that to, to us today as well. So when you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and you'll find that on page 983, page 983, It's always ironic that we hear the beer bottles and wine bottles get thrown in the bin as we open the Bibles. That's the nature of being on a street with lots of pubs, isn't it? Well, that was Amy Winehouse's story, but let's, let's think about our story and Peter's story. Let's read these verses from Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 20. Page 983. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of 
Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Well, this part of God's word today, this, uh, this account by Matthew, kind of divides, I guess, into, into two sections. You've got Peter's declaration about Jesus, and then Jesus' declaration about Peter. That's how it divides. So let's think about Peter's declaration about Jesus. For Peter, this really was the moment in his life that defined him as a person and set the course and direction of his life. And it all revolved around the question of the identity of Jesus. Matthew, who wrote this account that we just read here, was also one of the disciples of Jesus, who along with Peter followed him around 2,000 years ago. They saw with their own eyes the, the remarkable miracles that Jesus performed. They heard with their own ears the amazing teaching that Jesus spoke. And they never forgot this moment. This crunch moment. Um, Jesus starts asking them really personal questions. Can you imagine you're standing before Jesus and you have these questions coming at you? Verse 13. Who do people say the Son of Man is? What he's asking is, what, who do people say I am? When Jesus uses that phrase, the Son of Man, in fact, in the New Testament it is used 81 times. And 79 of those, it is in the mouth of Jesus. This is how Jesus referred to himself. It was his favorite self-designation. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And, and why did he choose this title, the Son of Man? It's a fantastic title because it was so ambiguous in some ways. It could literally just mean a man. Uh, God dis, uh, speaks to Ezekiel and calls him son of man. He's just saying human being. But also, if you read in the book of Daniel, it describes one who was like a son of man, who comes in the clouds to, to God, the ancient of days. And, and he is the one uh, that God uh, sovereignly uh, gives him authority, glory, sovereign power, and says, you will have an everlasting kingdom to whom all people will worship. Now, as we go through this account, I want you to think, now, which of those two ones did Jesus mean? Did he, was he referring to himself? Was he just saying, look, I'm a human being? Or was he saying he was this divine son of man to whom all peoples should worship? Which, which one did Jesus think he was? Well, read through this and you'll just see, uh, you'll come to your own conclusion. I've got mine. We'll see, we'll see whether they agree. Who do people say I am, Jesus says. Well, actually, if we started reading from the beginning of Matthew, you'd get a variety of opinions. Uh, some people saw the amazing miracles he did. They didn't deny that these miracles took place. But they said, oh, no, he does these because he's, uh, he's in cahoots with uh, uh, Beelzebub. He's demon-possessed. That's who he is. He's demonic, this Jesus. Uh, other people... Um, they, they, they saw him hanging out with um, some questionable people in society, the people in society that uh, the good people didn't hang out with. And they said, oh, this Jesus, he's, he's just a glutton and a drunkard. You see, he goes to all these parties with all these 
sinners. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard, they accuse Jesus of. Many others just heard his teaching and they said, well, look, he's, he, he's, he's one of the prophets and they named a whole host of these prophets here. You know, I wonder if we went out onto uh, Row Street or Princess Street the, today and we surveyed people, uh, we would probably get similar sort of responses, wouldn't we? If you bumped into a Muslim, what would a Muslim say? A Muslim would say, well, yes, Jesus, he's one of the prophets. He's to be revered among the prophets. If you bumped into someone who'd been in a, in a school where they had daily worship in the chapel and uh, they'd heard a lot about the teaching of Jesus, they might say, well, yes, he, um, he was a fine moral teacher. His life was exemplary and, and he taught us you know, what's right and wrong. I, I guess many others would just, you know, because of the poor state of some of our schools, they would say, who? Who are you talking about? And then comes this crunch moment for the disciples. He, he's done the general, and then he gets really personal, doesn't he? But what about you, verse 15? What about you? Who do you say I am? Now, this is, this is a question of a different feel and significance, isn't it? Um, who do you think the country uh, is going to vote for in the general election? Well, that's a nice little general question, isn't it? And you can uh, you know, give your answers, what you think the nation's going to do. Uh, who are you going to vote for in the general election? Ooh, that feels a little bit more personal, doesn't it? A bit more real. I mean, I have to, I have to put my views out there, and you're going to judge me on my views. So much so that most people told the pollsters that they hadn't made their mind up yet. Oh, we haven't made our mind up yet. They were going to vote conservatives, but we haven't made our mind up yet. It was too personal to share. Here's a general question. Do you think marriage is a good thing? Now listen to this question. Will you marry me? Ooh, that's a personal question, isn't it? Oh, that's a kind of an exposing question. That's, a, that's an awkward question. You've got to come one way or the other with that question. Well, that's what this question is, isn't it, that Jesus asked his disciples. Yeah, we've, we've, we've covered what the crowds say. What about you? Who do you say I am? And, you know, if I had the time, I would do a Richard Beard on you, and I'd ask you a direct question. I'd look you in the eyes and I'd want to say, who do you say Jesus is? 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 I'd love to go around every one of you. You'd hate it, wouldn't you? It's a very personal question, but it's the crucial question. It's the vital question. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, this is the moment that defined Peter forever. As he answered, verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now you've been maybe in church for many years. Just think how extraordinary that statement is. What was Peter saying about Jesus? Well, the Jewish people were waiting for God to fulfill his ancient promises to restore his rule over them through a king who would bring salvation. A king who would renew them as a nation. A king who would gather together the scattered people of God under his rule and he would rule over them with righteousness and justice. He would usher in a golden age of prosperity and blessing, not just for them, but for the whole world. 
Amazing promises that remained unfulfilled for hundreds of years. But Peter declares that the waiting was over. You are that king. He said, that's who you are, Jesus. You are that king. The waiting is over. You're the one that was promised. You're the one who's going to bring in an everlasting kingdom. Your rule and your reign will not just be for a a limited time. It will be for all time. And it will not just be over a, a limited geographical area. It's going to be over the whole world. You are that king. The one that God promised David would come. You're the one to whom Psalm 2 declares this, where God declares, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. What gifts will this king get when he comes to be enthroned? Well, nothing less than the inheritance of all the nations. He'll possess all peoples. They will all come under his rule. And Peter says, you're that one. Incredible. You're that king. And you see, if Peter, what Peter says here is true, then actually, do you see why we're still talking about Jesus today? Because actually, we are his inheritance. You might think you're here as an individual belonging to yourself. Actually, you do not. You belong to him. He is your king. You should submit your life uh, under his rule, under his authority. If what Peter confesses is right, that's the significance of what his declaration is saying here. Well, that's Peter's declaration about Jesus. Let's let's think in in verses 17 to 20 about Jesus' declaration of Peter. Jesus says three things about Peter off the back of his declaration. And actually, the audaciousness of what Jesus says here just gets bigger and bigger. You know, even though he's speaking about Peter, think about how, what these statements say about him who could say such things. So, three audacious claims that Jesus makes. Firstly, Peter was blessed by God to realize this. Verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Three things quickly to note. Firstly, Jesus accepted what Peter said was true. He doesn't deny it, does it? He accepts the title. This was Jesus' self-understanding. He had come in fulfillment of the promises of God. He was the anointed and appointed king. He was the son of the living God. And in a way that even Peter had not yet fully grasped. Because secondly, look at how Jesus speaks of his relationship with God. He does not say this was revealed by our Father in heaven, which would have put him in an equal place with all other human beings. He says, this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. This is a claim to a unique relationship, not simply as a human king appointed by God, but as a divine king, one who is equal with God. And that's why we're still talking about Jesus today. See, those who are getting baptized today, along with all uh, Christians, are those who come to see that in Jesus, God has revealed 
himself in human flesh in history. Um, the Bible says if you're an atheist here today, you're foolish. And actually, now that Jesus has come, if you're an agnostic, you're lazy. Because God has revealed himself in Jesus. If you know what God's like, wonder no more. Don't look anywhere else. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will see as he uh, lives his life, as it's recorded in the scriptures, as, as he speaks, uh, 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 as, uh, as, as you examine his extraordinary life in the Gospels, you can come to know the living God. And how would he come to this understanding? Well, thirdly, because God the Father had revealed it to him. See, many others had seen the miracles, had heard the teaching, but they were totally confused as to the identity of Jesus. But Peter got it. How did he get it? Well, because God had given him this correct understanding of who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is saying here. Why is it that some hear and do not respond while others do? And the answer is this, God must be at work. God must open people's hard hearts to believe. God opens blind eyes to see. God opens unbelieving deaf ears to hear. And perhaps people have heard, like Richard spoke of earlier, many, many years, and it just didn't, it was like water off a duck's back. It didn't have any impact. And then suddenly the penny drops. There's a moment of spiritual comprehension and faith that declares, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. See, it's not about whether you um, have had a private education. It's not about whether you've been very moral and upright. It's not about how intelligent you are. It is the gracious blessing of God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so if you are here today as a Christian, never forget it is because you've been blessed by God. If you are trusting Christ today, do not doubt that the living God has touched your life. You, you didn't get this because you were clever or smart. God the Father graciously revealed to you that this person, Jesus, is Christ, the Son of God, who is Lord, and you have submitted your life to him. Never forget how amazing it is to have this understanding. How kind God is that you should so see Christ and trust him. Praise him. Never lose that thankfulness and that wonder. And if you don't yet see this, and you're here and you're thinking, actually, I don't know what you're talking about. Just keep coming and listening. And actually, why don't you pray to God and ask him to reveal to you the truth about Jesus. So Peter was blessed, but there's two more things Jesus says about Peter. Secondly, Peter and his confession was the rock upon which Jesus Christ would build his church. Simon Peter has declared to Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus declares something to Simon. Verse 18, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. <laughs> the claims of Christ are so outrageously big 
It's extraordinary. Uh, Simon was his name when uh, Jesus met him. And early on, Jesus gave him this nickname, Rock. We have no account of anybody uh, being called Rocky uh, before this point. So Jesus coins this just for Simon. He says, hey, follow me. I'm going to call you Rocky. And, uh, and this was the moment where Jesus reveals to Peter why he gave him this nickname. Because actually, you know, if you translate it the way, really, I guess it is in the text, it's basically saying, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, if you've never thought much about Jesus, how audacious is this last claim? Up to now, the Israelites saw themselves as God's people who were gathered together by God. They, they look back to that amazing moment when God saved them out of Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, and gathered them around Mount Sinai where God spoke through this thundering mountain and gave them ten words and gathered them as a people around himself. And, and later in the book of Acts, you'll see how Stephen describes this gathering as the church in the wilderness. And here Jesus declares that actually from this point on, that soon there's going to be a new gathering. A new people of God. And they're going to be gathered together around who? Around him. Around Christ. I will build my gathering, my church. Who does Jesus think he is? Remember those two options earlier? Son of man could just be a human or it could be this divine king. Which one do you think Jesus thinks he is? It's quite clear, isn't it? He, he, he's not merely saying he's a human being when he just calls himself the son of man. He means that Daniel son of man, that, that one who goes to the ancient of days, who's given all glory, authority and power and all the nations will worship him. He, that's who he thinks he is. That's who he claims he is. Ezekiel promised that the Messiah King would gather the scattered people of God under his rule. And Jesus commits that this is indeed what he will do. He will build his church. And my friends, if you're here as a church minister, an elder, uh, an evangelist, a church planter, what a relief this is. Note this. Who's in charge of building his church? Is it you? Praise God, no. He's doing the heavy lifting. I will build my church. I sometimes go to bed anxious, and I think about that, and then I can sleep. Ah, oh, it's your church, Lord. You're gonna, even I'm sleeping, he's building. What a precious thing. And um, I guess as we witness two people getting baptized today, we're being reminded that he is continuing to add to this gathering around him as people get baptized. Now think about the claim, not even death, not even the gates of Hades will be able to stop people from being part of this gathering. Isn't that incredible? The Christ King was building a community of people for whom not even death will be able to get in the way of the gathering. What an astonishing thing for Jesus to say. And the only way it could possibly make sense is uh, on the third day after he was crucified to see an empty tomb. And a risen saviour. 
It is only the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that makes this claim that he could be the king over an everlasting kingdom. That the gates of of death, of Hades, will not be able to uh, withhold the impact of the church that he is building. And Peter, who first confessed the true identity of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, would become the rock upon which Jesus would build this new death-defying community. If we were to read on in our Bibles, we'd get to the book of Acts and we would see 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter, who um, had previously been nervous and frightened and hiding in a room when the Spirit of God came upon them at Pentecost, is standing out on the very streets of Jerusalem where only months before Jesus had been tortured and killed and he proclaims the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and he says to them therefore let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ this Jesus is that Christ who's bringing in an everlasting kingdom to which all the nations should come and worship all of their lives should submit to him this is the Jesus that we're proclaiming to you And the people uh, were cut to the heart, it says, and they asked, how should they respond? And he replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and of all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Those who accepted this message, what did they do? Well, they were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number. Through the, the witness and the teaching of Peter and his apostles, the Lord added daily to their number of those who were being saved. He was the rock upon which Christ built his church. And um, his, his uh, witness and the apostles' witness was a foundational uh, setting of the church, Ephesians 2.20 describes the, that uh, Paul says to the, these uh, Gentile Christians in Ephesus, you've trusted Christ, where well, you are too are being built on this temple whose foundation stone are Christ and his apostles. They have this foundational role in the history of the church. But you know what, today, whenever the gospel that the apostles preached is preached, whenever what... Uh, Peter declared is declared to people and people believe it and confess through baptism Jesus Christ he continues to build his church today as a, as a side note of all the church names out there the one I love the most is Christ Church because it's the simplest one uh, it's the most direct way of referring to what a church is I have to say I have to do a lot of explaining to people about what Charlotte Chapel means it's got nothing to do with the Queen Charlotte, really, and it's, and it's not Catholic, even though it says chapel. And, but, but actually, Christ Church is simply to say this is the church where Christ's people gather together. That's what a church is. It's Christ Church. Where have you come to today? Well, this is Christ Church. This is a gathering of people who've submitted their lives to Christ, who've come gathered together here at Charlotte Chapel. And there's a third statement. Which shows us why being part of Christ's church is so significant. Because thirdly, Peter and the disciples were gifted with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 19. If you drifted off, look down at your Bible. 16, verse 19. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Think again, how audacious is this claim? Jesus is saying that he has the authority to grant access into the kingdom of God. He is the way that we gain access into God's presence and to come under the blessing of God's rule. How can he claim such a thing? I think you've probably all heard by now, if you've been in a church, what C.S. Lewis says. He's, he's either mad, he's either bad, or he's God himself. There's no other option, is there, for someone who says such outrageous things. And why is it future? Why does he say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom? Well, because he has first to experience the uh, suffering in Jerusalem. He has to go in, uh, to the cross and be killed to achieve salvation, to purchase this entrance into the kingdom of God to achieve this pardon, redemption, so we can move from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. Jesus came to bear the curse of God in the place of, of, of rebel sinners. And by his death on the cross, he achieves a way that the way is open into God's presence. Next week, we're going to learn more about that as we continue to think about what he continues to teach his disciples. The reason he tells them not to tell anyone that he's the Christ is they still haven't really got what sort of Christ he's going to be. They have to get this next bit. Come back next week to find out the next bit. But what is astonishing here is that Jesus says, you know, I have the authority to give you keys to the access to, to, to the kingdom of heaven. But what's even more incredible is he says to Peter, I'm going to give you that authority. Um, he's going to be given the keys of the kingdom. The authority of giving entrance or excluding people from the kingdom of heaven was going to be given to Peter. This is an, a mind-boggling thought, but there is a link between the kingdom of heaven and the church of Christ on earth. So that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Now it is a very unusual bit of Greek grammar. A periphrastic future or pluperfect or something. I don't, I don't even understand it myself. It just sounds amazing. But uh, the footnote lets you know that it can be translated a slightly different way. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven which lets us see that it's a bit more complex than Peter telling God what to do. It's never that way around, really, is it? But Peter and the disciples of Jesus, as they preach the gospel, as they obey the great commission of Jesus, they are the means by which people are given entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We've already seen and heard about it in Acts 2. Peter preaches and tells people to repent and be baptized. And on that day, 3,000 were baptized, having responded to Jesus because of their witness. And they were added to the church and received the assurance of their eternal salvation. As they were baptized, they added to the church. If you read on to Acts chapter 10, you'll see that uh, what it took for God to convince Peter that this was not just a message for Jewish people, but for non-Jewish people, for Gentiles as he does some extraordinary things to get him to go and visit a Roman centurion called Cornelius. And uh, after he starts preaching the good news of the gospel to Cornelius, what happens? Well, as he's preaching, they receive the Holy Spirit in a really 
obvious way. And so Peter declares, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And then we see Peter exercising his authority as the key holder to the kingdom of heaven. As the text says, he orders. That's the word used. He's a steward with a key and he orders that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They too should receive this identification with Christ and his people. They too, therefore, having received the Spirit, believing the gospel, have entered into the kingdom of heaven. And Peter orders, well, they should be baptized. And the church back in Jerusalem just have to marvel and they say, well, they praise God saying, so then God has granted even Gentiles repentance unto life. Well, that's probably most of us in the room, isn't it? How incredible. I mean, there may be some Jewish people here, but um, I think most of us are Gentiles. How amazing. God has granted even Gentiles repentance to life. Now, we don't have time to kind of get into this fully, but you'll also read, you'll see how people were excluded from uh, the people of God through church discipline. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 18, page 985, let me just read these verses. Even as Jesus is teaching his disciples, he is uh, knowing what is to come about this gathering, and he knows that people will fall out, and so he finds a way of uh, a process that people should go through. 18 verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, here am I with them. Now we're going to get to this in, in future months, but do you see... That what happens in local churches on earth is linked with the realities of the kingdom of heaven. What happens in Christian churches as people are accepted through baptism and membership and also sadly at times excluded through excommunication bears significant correspondence with people's real spiritual state before God. Now we don't like this. We're highly individualistic. We say, well, I can define myself. I'll, def- I'll say if I'm in the people of God or not. Well, it's not that straightforward, is it? It doesn't work like that in life either. You can't just walk into an American embassy and declare, I am an American citizen. You can't self-declare. They, well, let's check the records. Have we got any record of you being born in America or having a green card? Or, Oh, we don't, sir. I'm sorry. You can't self-declare. And there's this link between what happens in Christian churches and the realities of the kingdom of heaven, your spiritual state before God. How do you know you belong to the kingdom of heaven? Well, here's a challenging question. Are you a believing member of the Christian church on earth? Are you someone who is a member of Christ's church that is built on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Or are you outside of it? 
Either because you've never entered or because you've been removed. Do you see why baptism and membership is such a big deal? That other Christians, that elders of Christ church recognize you as a true believer through baptism and membership, as someone who's repented of their sin to trust Christ, is a great assurance of the genuineness of your faith and salvation. The church on earth is the society of people who share Peter's profession that Jesus is the Messiah King, the Son of the living God. It's a society where Christ's kingdom is represented uh, like an embassy, I guess. It, it is put into effect. It is displayed and extended. So, shall I stand at the door? And make you all walk past me one by one. And look you in the eyes and ask you, who do you say Jesus Christ is? We're British, so I won't. But it is the crucial question. Who do you say? On that question hangs your identity. He is the defining person. Either he will define you because you've stumbled over him, you've rejected him, and you will be stumbling towards judgment. Or he is the rock upon which you will build your life, you will trust him, and he'll define you both now and for all eternity, setting the course of your life. He is such a gracious king there's no other person who you could submit to your life to to whom will do you so much good there's no one else who has died for you has sacrificed himself for you has been raised for you why don't you come and trust him today who do you say he is well you can walk out of this room and you can basically say look Jesus was a liar or you could say, look, the sort of stuff he's saying, he's a lunatic. Who says this sort of thing? Or you could say, actually, he's Lord. And I'm going to trust him. Or I am trusting him. You have to make some response to this person. Well, we've got a little way you can connect with us. We've got a, a connect card, isn't that nifty? It says what it says. And... Um, Maybe this is all new to you and actually you didn't understand half of what I said and it would really help me if you tell me to my face, I didn't understand half of what you said because I wanted to be able to communicate this better. But you can take a box saying I want to find out more. Um, maybe you're thinking actually suddenly I'm realizing church is a big deal and I want to learn about baptism and membership. Well why don't you tick those boxes and uh, fill in your details and uh, give it to us. But perhaps right now you, you want to submit your life to King Jesus. You want to get right with him. And so I'm going to lead in a prayer and invite you to echo this prayer in your own heart and mind if today you want to respond to King Jesus. In your own heart and mind, why don't you pray this? Dear Lord God, 
Today I realize that I'm lost and outside of your kingdom. Thank you for sending Jesus, your son, who died to secure my forgiveness. Thank you that his resurrection means not even death can separate me from your eternal love. Please forgive my sins. Today I know there's nothing more important than to turn and put King Jesus first in my life. Please receive me into your kingdom to live under his rule. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer and you'd like some help to know how to grow in your Christian life, why don't you fill out this card, uh, tick the relevant box, and we'd be delighted to spend time with you to help you to know how you can follow Christ.